Our reading today is from Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 13. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. I should have said we do have such a high priest. I believe I said we do not. Please forgive me. Correct myself. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. These are the words of the Lord. Thank you, Liz. I brought a stool up with me today. Uh, one of the complications I had post-surgery is I'm trying to get my feet under me. And uh, rather than sort of wondering if I can, I'm just going to keep this stool up here. I may need it, I may not, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how we go. Uh, good morning. Welcome. How are we doing? Good. That's good. Ready to jump into Hebrews? Yeah? I hope so. Because uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I am so uh, excited to see you all here. It has been just a thrill for me personally 
to be able to uh, minister and to be able to serve and to just be a part of the church gathering back on Sundays. So I want to say a welcome to those of you who are here. Thank you. I do realize that some of you can't be here. And so if you're joining us digitally, I want to say welcome to you as well. Please know that my excitement to be here in person is not a judgment on those of you who can't be uh, or uh, for whatever reason are are not here. Uh, We are just thrilled to be gathering as God's people. Uh, I read somewhere, and I I can't recall exactly where, but I I know that multiple people have studied this, that there are a, someone has compiled a list of the number of stories. Uh, There's a certain type of, there's a certain number of story types. I think it might be like seven. There's only seven types of stories that that are told. Uh, There's the, you know, there's the story of, Uh, overcoming struggle. There's the story of kind of love. There's a story of friendship. Uh, One of those seven types of stories is the epic quest or the the epic saga. And it's about sort of the, the journey, often the hero's journey to arrive at the hidden uh, or sometimes forbidden destination. Uh, this is something I think that really says a thing or two about our hearts and who we are, that we love these types of stories. Uh, there's a reason that Marvel uh, is so lucrative in their ability uh, to just dress people in, f- uh, in fantastic costumes and then uh, get our money. But uh, these quests, these stories, really reflect a desire of our heart. And in fact, it's not just a reflection of that, but, but it actually prompts people to do things. Uh, I remember in American history class, we would learn about uh, some of the explorers who came to North America. They were looking for the fountain of youth. This, this quest, this, this idea that there is a place out there that has infinite life, where, where age and mortality are left behind and I can drink of this fountain of youth, this quest, this desire. And while they never found the fountain of youth, they did find the state of Florida, which uh, for a lot of people in the US, they sort of see that as their fountain of youth, they go to Florida. Um, So people discover things along the way, but no one has actually found this this fountain of youth. We, We keep seeking and we keep questing as it were. We are in the midst of the book of Hebrews and we're, we're looking at this idea of seeing Jesus. And Hebrews, you should know, is a book that plays between two poles. On the one hand, you have this pole that emphasizes what we don't see yet, what we don't have. We haven't entered the promised land yet. We haven't seen the kingdom in its fullness yet. We haven't seen the glory of the sons of God and daughters of God. We haven't seen all that yet. Yet on the other hand, there's this other pole of what we do have. And and so this letter, it just plays between these two tensions of what we do have and what we don't have. What we do have and what we don't have. And there's this constant sort of shifting back and forth and back and forth. And this morning as we come to chapter 8, you need to know he's leaning hard into what we do have. We're going to lean full on into what is present reality for the Christian. And that's really important. And the reason he is sort of bouncing back and forth and going between these two things is, and the reason he's sort of riding that tension is because it's a tension we all feel. 
we all feel in this overlapping of the ages right now, this overlapping of the kingdoms. While we see the kingdom come but have not seen the kingdom in its fullness. And he goes back and forth between these two poles of what we do have but what we don't have yet in order to keep us going in faith. Faith sees with spiritual eyes the way things really are. Faith is what we need to continue moving forward, to continue advancing. Not self-advancement, but literal advancement to the kingdom of God, to the place where he rules and reigns and dwells, not in theory, but in reality. And we see today, Hebrews chapter 8, that the real God is served by the real Christ in a real heaven and is in that space a mediator of a new covenant. This morning, I just want to jump back into the things that we talked about last week. Excuse me while I uh, pull up my my slides here on my device. Uh, Last week, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 28, and in looking at those verses, we learned a lot about Jesus's identity and who he, who he was and, and is now. And we learned about the eternal son being perfected and, and how he's appointed to a priesthood. Uh, and the whole chapter delved into this idea of Melchizedek and, because it's really trying to show what kind of king priest Jesus is. And we saw that he's a permanent king priest. So we've leaned into the the identity of Jesus and now the author is finally coming to what they've been trying to say from the beginning. Or as he says, his main point. And I'm thankful to Liz for correcting yourself in that reading because (laughs) it literally would have undermined everything that I'm about to say this morning. (laughs) It's amazing how one word changes things. So good on you for being sensitive. (laughs) That's right. The Spirit leads us. All right, so a bit of context. Uh, with the foundation of Jesus' identity in place and sort of who we, we know him to be, the author's going to go into the main argument. And the main argument of this book is that the priestly ministry of Jesus exceeds and excludes all other ways of gaining access to God. The priestly ministry of Jesus exceeds and excludes all all other ways of gaining access to God. You say, what, what happens if you gain access to God? If you have access to God, you have access to his grace and mercy that will save us from death. Or in the language of the writer of Hebrews, the language is, Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation. The source of eternal salvation. So that we can be saved in every way that it is possible to be saved. Now, what follows here in 8.1 all the way to 10.18 is the heart of the letter. And in the heart of the letter, I really like what uh, Gareth Cockrell had to say about this. And I'm going to put his idea forward. I think it's a good one. This section, 8.1 to 10.18, is a three-part symphony. A three-part symphony to the priestly ministry of Jesus. And within each part of a symphony, if you've ever been to a symphony orchestra, you know that, that the, the, the themes are carried through, but in different ways throughout the symphony until you get to the crescendo at the end. 
So the, each part in this symphony, uh, and we'll look at the first part today, 8, 1 to 13. In each part of the symphony, there's, there's three themes that are, that are being interwoven together. So three parts, but within each part, three themes. The first is the entering of the heavenly sanctuary. The second theme is the offering of the sacrifice for sins. And the last theme is the establishing of a new covenant. All of this is bound up within the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, in the opening movement here, we're going to be introduced to these themes by showing their basis in the Old Testament scriptures. So here we go. Again, taking the word of God and reasoning from the word of God, looking at what God has said to understand the way things are. And there's two passages There's more that are alluded to in this, but there's two key passages. Here we are, back to Psalm 110. Notice, different verse this time, verse 1, not verse 4. Back to Psalm 110, verse 1, and then a key verse, Jeremiah, excuse me, key series of verses, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Now, by way of overview, uh, having shown Jesus' priestly identity, what kind of priesthood he has, he's now going to move to the main argument. This is how the logic is working here. His hearers ought to persevere. They ought to continue in the faith. He's going to give some reasons for that. First, since Jesus is their true high priest. It's really important. He is their true high priest. So the idea is that if they don't continue, they're forfeiting something. They're giving it up. They're letting go of something they currently have right now. The second reason they ought to persevere is that since Jesus is their true high priest, he has a better ministry. So this, this priest, this, this person who is relating them to God has a better ministry. And thirdly, he mediates or presides over or, or executes, you could say if you will, a better covenant. And for these reasons, they ought to persevere. That's sort of the, the flow of the whole, the whole book. And within this, the text, this is how his main argument works. But let's zoom out for a minute. The, the big question that, that this text raises is, how can we be sure that God will accept us? How can we be sure that God will accept us? It's a really relevant question. How can you know for sure? How can I know for sure? When we talk to people who don't know God and we talk about the gospel, we talk about Jesus Christ, are we actually giving them good information or are we merely trying to sell them on a theory? In other words, are we passing over to them the code, the key, Or are we simply saying, hey, why don't you try this? How can we be sure that God will accept us? Now, there's many ways we can answer that question. We could say, well, I can be sure God can accept me based on my response. And while that's a kind of easily accessible sort of handhold to grab onto, you say, look, I I know I can be accepted before God because of what I do with that, as much as that sounds like it's nice, it sounds like it's within my grasp, the reality is 
At the end of the day, that statement says it depends on me. Access to God depends on me. And so the picture is that God is somehow, and maybe you get this picture of God, that he's sort of sitting back in heaven with his arms crossed and he's just watching your life unfold. And he's going, hmm, interesting choice there. I'll make note of that. Hmm, wow, that was really inspiring. Hmm, I'll make note of that. Oh, Oh, don't do that. Oh, he did that. I can't believe he did that. Oh, all right. Moving on. Let's look at the next person. <laughs> we can have this view of God, but if you situate your certainty of your access and being acceptable to God in your own response, then you're really only as good as your performance, aren't you? Your hope is really only as sure as what you've done. Now, some people might respond to that and say, why wouldn't God accept me? If God doesn't want me, I don't want him. And you talk to these sorts of people and they think, you know what? I'm a decent human being. I go out of my way to be accommodating and to be nice to people. I've never murdered anybody. I've never killed. I've never stolen from somebody. I, I, I you know, I'm faithful in my relationships. Hey, if that's not good enough for God, I don't know if I want to be with that God. And to adopt that sort of position is to say, look, I'm ready to be my own advocate. I'm ready to go in and God, take me or leave me. I'm good. People who talk like that, to them, God's the big fella. He's the boss. He's the man in the sky. There's this way of distilling our creator down into something that's more acceptable to us because we're ready to just sort of go on our terms. Other people say, well, look, I keep the rules. Again, that's a form of my response. Other people may say, well, look, I can be sure because I have participated in the religious rituals. I'm acceptable to God because I've jumped through the hoops. I went to Sunday school. I went forward to the Billy Graham crusade. I prayed this prayer at this time. I wrote a decision card. I did this, I did that. Again, all well and good, but legitimately, how can we be sure we will be acceptable to God? The whole premise of this text is that we are not on our own acceptable to God. In fact, the premise goes even further to say that even when God has said everything that he expects of his people, people are still not good enough. And so the whole rest of this message isn't going to make sense unless you've got your head around this simple truth that we need a new way to God. We needed a new way. The old way of going to God, even if you became a Jew, went through all the rituals, lived by the Ten Commandments, did all those things, even if you did that and did it perfectly, you still would have needed a new way. The big idea this morning is that Jesus entered heaven to establish a better way for us. A better way for us to get there. 
when the law came, you, you, we got the instructions, we got, we got sort of the manual given to us, but we didn't get the vehicle to get there. We were given the map, but we weren't given the means. And all we could do is sit and think, wow, there's no way that I can get there. Seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus in one way means finding the door to heaven standing open right now. You will know that you have seen Jesus properly when you realize the door to heaven is open right now. That there is a way that is true for you and I and for anyone who would walk through to be in God's presence. As we come to the outline this morning, Hebrews 8 to 13, 8, 1 to 13 calls us to consider two reasons why the high priestly ministry of Jesus is better. First of all, it's better, sorry, this sounds like a tautology. I was writing this late at night and my kids were fighting, so I'm sorry. It was, uh, this, the first point should have been worded better. But basically, we need to consider this ministry because Jesus is a better minister and he mediates a better covenant. Jesus is a better minister and he mediates a better covenant. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you encourage us from the scriptures this morning to see and understand all that Christ has done for us. May we relish the opportunity to join you in your kingdom. And may we persevere. Lord, would you speak to us through the Holy Spirit today in your name, amen. Jesus has a better ministry, verses one to six. We see his ministry is better because he made his offering in the true sanctuary, in God's true sanctuary. Follow with me, verses one to six. Now the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest. Such a high priest, what kind of high priest? A Melchizedek type priest. A Melchizedek, a king priest. A king priest with eternal origins. A king priest whose ministry goes on forever. A king priest who actually, actually is greater than the priests that are serving in the current temple. That's the kind of priest. The main point is we have one. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes in life, people come along to you and they say, you have that thing? And you're like, what, this old thing? And, and they say, yes, that is a rare treasure. And you think, really? It's just gathering dust in my little cabinet over there. But it's really, really special and precious. Let me tell you all these things. Or maybe like sometimes I, I, I pull my wife aside. I say, let me show you what your iPhone can do. And she's like, what? It just makes calls, right? I'm like, no, you can do so much more than make calls. Look at this. The reasoning here is that the people who are listening would consider the value of Jesus, would appreciate what he's doing. And the argument comes that we have such a priest. And then he's going to describe it, the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. This priest sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Who, and I'm going to, the NIV puts this into a verbal form, but I'm going to give you the literal translation here. Who is a minister? 
who is a minister in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human. The point simply is Jesus' ministry is better, A, because he sat down, he's done, he's finished, and B, where he's ministering. It's a better ministry because he's doing it in the sanctuary that is the true sanctuary in heaven. We could set up all sorts of symbols and all sorts of rituals and we could have a service full of baptisms and all the smells and bells and everything and it could be very rich and infused with meaning. I really believe that. I'm not, I'm not anti-liturgy and high church. I'm not anti that. But you could go through all of that and it could, its sole purpose is to bring to mind to you the, the depth and the richness of the holiness that, that you're participating in as a worshiper of God. But none of that is going to be a substitute for when you're actually in the presence of God. There is no prayer or Bible study or worship service or communion or baptism experience. There is no experience that is going to even come close to actually being in the presence of God. All of this is meant to build your faith and encourage you for the point when you arrive in the presence of God. Now, again, we're in this overlapping time right now. The presence of God is dwelling within us spiritually. We are in the presence of God all the time in a sense, but, but in another way, not quite what we will be. You see, the authentic is always better than the imitation. Let me illustrate this. Your Oreos here are terrible. <laughs> Sorry if you like Oreos. But they are nothing, nothing like the Oreos that come out of the Nabisco factory in North America, okay? I love Australia, I love lots of things about it, but I've actually looked into this. You can read on the packet, and your, your Oreos come from a different place. And I'm sorry, whenever someone, I walk by the aisles, I look at the Oreos and I think, I love Oreos, but that's a knockoff. I don't want that. Uh, now, give me a Tim Tim, yep. Give me a mint slice, absolutely, I'll, I'll, I'll have that. That's the genuine article, but the Oreos, no way. But when someone, a relative or a friend or somebody visits from, from the US, what do we ask them to bring? Oreos. Bring me Oreos. I want double stuff. I want two packs. I, I, and we, always, we always get more than one pack because the first pack is for opening on arrival. Here, here's the Oreos. Great, whack, the pack's right open and we, we'll, we'll just put it away. You can never just get one pack of imported Oreos. Why is the Lolly Shop at Windsor so popular? Because they bring in the good stuff. Right? The, the authentic is, is always better than the imitation. It's always better than the, than the copy. It's always better than the derivative. I, I'm going to tell you, when we're in heaven for all eternity, I don't think you're going to remember this worship service and think, I wish we could be back there. No. You won't. And I, and I won't. 
And that's not because I don't think what we're doing here is important. It is important. But my goodness, we'll be actually in the presence of God. And so while this book is being written, here, here's all these priests, the morning and the evening sacrifice, the, the, the slaughtering of the lamb and, and, and the, the, the offerings, the gifts being presented and the table and the showbread and the, and the two curtains, you know, the, the curtain into the holy place and then the curtain into the most holy place and the cherubim and all that. Not that I think they had the ark. The ark was taken by then, but the, you get what I'm saying. All that's going on, while that's happening, where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, we often think of that as Jesus simply being enthroned as the king of kings. But most commentators would tell you that what's in view in Psalm 110 is it's a priestly session. It's a priestly ministry. The scene of Psalm 110 is a scene of offering. And so he's told to sit down while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And when he swears the oath, so David, when he's writing Psalm 110, he's overhearing this conversation between God on the throne and the son who's brought in the offering. And he's saying, sit down. You're done. That's where Jesus is right now. Why would you go through that when you have a priest in heaven like that? He's got a better ministry. Now, verse 3. And we're not going to go into too much detail on this. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If Jesus is going to be a priest, this is what a priest does. They bring a gift and a sacrifice. The sacrifice Jesus brings is himself. He brings himself as the sacrifice. He makes an offering. You see, implied in, in the priestly relationship is that there needs to be an intermediary. There needs to be someone who can stand in between a holy God and an unholy people. Someone's got to open that door. Someone's got to make that way. Someone's got to cover that sin and get rid of it. Notice the logic is very intriguing. Verse 4, if he were on earth, if Jesus was on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. He's now envisioning if you take Jesus out of heaven and he's here on earth, he's not a priest. Someone's already doing that. They offer the gifts and sacrifices prescribed by the law. Verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Moses was the greatest priest. You could say, yes, Aaron was the high priest, but if you read in the book of Exodus, who's the one standing, interceding with God before the people? It's Moses. Who's the one who God is communicating through? It's Moses. Aaron would be the mouthpiece, but Moses was the mediator. And God, as he's telling Moses how to set up a way for his people to worship him, as he's brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery, 
God gives Moses very specific instructions. And those instructions are almost like a blueprint. And they say, you got to make it like this. Again, it's derivative of the authentic, of the original, of what is truly holy, the true sanctuary. Now, verse 6 is the, is the transition point. And if you want to understand how these 13 verses fit together, I really encourage you, think of it like, think of it like a door on a hinge. Verse 6 is the hinge point. Verse 6 is the key verse. It's the transition. It's how we get from ministry in a sanctuary to covenant. Verse 6 is worth meditating on a lot this week for you. But it's the hinge point. So it closes off this discussion. And he just simply makes the point. He says, in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. He's introduced a new idea. See how much better this ministry is? Do you want to have a priest who's a Levite who's walking in with, with lamb's blood? Or do you want the high priest, the king priest, Jesus, walking into heaven with his own blood? Which one do you want? Which one do you want representing you? He's like, of course you want the one who's really in heaven and the one who brings the sacrifice that puts an end to all other sacrifices. There's no way you would choose the, the guy walking in with the lamb's blood who's got to do it again tonight and then, then the, next, the next day. And by the way, has to do it for himself before he can do it for anybody else because he's just as corrupt as everyone else. You wouldn't pick that ministry. Well, in verse 6 comes along and he says, you see how much better this ministry is? He's such a better minister. This priestly ministry is so much better. It's just as much better as the, new, as the covenant is better that he's a minister of. And you're like, okay, hold on here. He's gone, look at the difference. You see that difference? Carry that difference across. And that difference also pertains to the covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is the terms by which two parties are bound together. A covenant is the terms by which two parties are bound together. It's presided over by a higher authority. That's why you can have covenants in business. That's why you can have covenants of marriage. And that's why you can have a covenant with God. It's the means by which two parties are bound together. So there's these two, these two covenants. Now, there's other covenants that are in the Bible, but the writer to the Hebrews likes to refer to those things, like God's covenant with Abraham, for instance, as, as a promise. The two covenants that he has in mind here are the covenant that the people of Israel received from Moses on Mount Sinai when they were constituted as his people, and the new covenant, which God foretold in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that Jesus established. This is what we remember when we take communion together. So if a covenant is the means by which two, the terms under which two parties are brought together, and he's going to carry this difference across. You got the Levitical ministry, and you got Jesus' ministry. He's going to carry it across. He says, well, here's one set of terms. You can, have a, you can be bound to God under the terms of the old covenant, which says... As long as you maintain your righteousness as a Jew, you will continue in your relationship with God. Then there's the covenant that Jesus made, 
which is, on the basis of my sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, you will be brought into relationship with God and his righteousness will be put upon you. Do you see the difference? Under the law, you had to meet the standard. You had to meet the standard morally. You had to meet the standard in a ritualistic way or, or, or cultically. It wasn't just that you had to do the right things, but you had to worship in the right way. You had to wear the right clothes. You had to stand in the right spot. You had to say the right words. You had to do all that perfectly. And you had to come to God, not just morally right or cultically right, but you had to be of the right lineage, ethnically. That's one set of terms. There's another set of terms. Under this set of terms, you come to God as pure and blameless, not on the basis of what you offer, but on the basis of what Jesus has offered. And because that offering is so sufficient, his righteousness, his blood, covers over all of your sin. It doesn't just cover though, but it cleanses as well. It knocks down the ethnic division. It levels everyone under the standard of being short of the glory of God. And it says, but on a new basis, not a basis of performance, but a basis of faith, you can be right with God. These are the terms of the new covenant. Do you see him carrying it across in verse 6? It's a better promise. It's a better promise. Let me illustrate this. Uh, in my job, sometimes I end up doing premarital counseling. And when we get to the time where, where we say, okay, you know, they're getting ready to, to, to plan the wedding, that's, that's one aspect of premarital counseling. I, I say, look, you guys, here's a whole stack of things you can put in your wedding ceremony. Go for your life. I said, but... I got one stipulation. <laughs> Let me see your vows. <laughs> Show me what your vows are. Why do I do that? Well, I want you to imagine two sets of vows. One set of vows is, I give myself to you as long as you do what I want. As long as you maintain a certain standard of beauty, as long as your weight never goes above or below this, as long as your income never falls below this. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just imagine. Just imagine us couple saying that to each other at the altar. <laughs> You'd say, I'm gonna, I give this thing six months. <laughs> right? Now imagine two people standing at the altar and they're getting ready to take the vows of marriage and they say, I take you to be my wife or I take you to be my husband. And here's where the old saints knew it well. For richer or for poorer. 
in sickness and in health. Good times, bad times, until death do us part. You say, that's love, that's commitment. What terms of a covenant? That's a better promise, right? That's a great promise. That person is saying, I give myself to you regardless. And the other one says, yes, and I give myself to you regardless. And we all get our hankies out and dry our eyes and say, isn't this amazing? Isn't this beautiful? It's going to be hard. Yes, absolutely. But we look at that and we say, yes, those are better promises. Much better promises than I'll love you if you do what I want. And God's not saying I love you if you do what I want. The old covenant says it's in accordance with his righteousness and it's his his standard. The difference is that promise is I will give you what you deserve. And it can be right and fair and just. You can get what you deserve from God. And there's nothing wrong with that. But guess where that puts you and me? Hell. Away from God forever. So one promise says, I will give you what you deserve. The other promise says, I will make you my own if you would have me. It's a better promise, folks. Now, let's look at the promise. Sorry, I was slow to change the transition on the slide. Better promise. Verse uh, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Now, what he's doing is he's looking down the corridor of, of time and, and the revelation of God with his people. And he's, he's saying, look, if, if this was all working properly, then why in the midst of it all working properly would God come along and say, let me tell you the new and the better way we're going to do this. You don't do that. Nobody says, oh, I know Apple announced a new product release, but I'm going to get the old one. Nobody does that. They say, oh, the new one's coming out in two months? I think I might wait. Verse 8, but God found fault with the people. Notice it wasn't his covenant that was wrong. It was their inability to keep it. He found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, right? These new terms that, that bind two parties together. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant, the one Moses gave, the Ten Commandments, right? Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. They did not keep it. They couldn't hold up their end. And because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will establish with my people. So now we're getting to the new one. This is the promise. Now Jeremiah is uttering these promises at the very same time that temple worship is happening. That the old system's functioning. This is the new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. What a difference. You say, I don't get the difference. All right. Where were the laws of God kept? Under the terms of the old covenant. On the tablets. Thank you. The law of God was written on stone. It was written on stone tablets, and that was so important because after Moses broke the first set, God said, go up and we're going to do it again. We're going to get you to rewrite those. 
And it wasn't just there, but the, that was the heart of it. The core is these stone tablets, and they were to go into the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea was, this is who our God is, this is his nature, and this is his ways. But if you were born two, three, four generations after that, you probably never saw the stone tablets. You got to get somebody to come over to your house and to tell you, or some, one of the priests at the temple to say, let me explain to you what these Ten Commandments are. And every generation is having to learn them. Now, under this covenant, though, God says, I'm not going to write them on stone. I'm going to write them on flesh. I'm going to write them in your heart and in your mind. Wow. Wow. The very people, the very people that God loves are learning his ways. Not externally like you study for an exam, not, not merely as a set of rules, but at the core of their being, at the seat of their decision making, at, at, at the very capacity of choice. Those are the places where the law and the righteousness of God is being written. So if you're a new Christian, or you've just started a season of growing in your faith, and you say, I feel terrible. Don't freak out. Let me tell you what's happening. The Spirit of God is teaching you the righteousness of God at an internal level. At the core of your being, he's writing these things on your heart. And you're realizing just how far you are from God or were from God. But so many people at that moment, they push away and they say, oh, this is a bit scary, this is a bit too, I, I, I don't feel loved anymore. Be wise. Recognize what God's doing. He's teaching you and training you in righteousness. He's putting his words and his laws in your heart. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This bringing in. We mentioned this last week. In Galatians, Paul is trying to, <laughs> in a very agitated way, Paul is writing to the Galatians and he's pulling his hair out and he's saying, why, 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 why would you forego being right with God on the basis of faith and instead try to make yourself right with God on the basis of the old covenant? That old covenant was a schoolmaster. It, it, it had a function for a time. But what's happening here now for the Christian is you've been adopted into a family. You've been brought into God's household in the fullest sense of that is. And if you are going to be a part of God's family and you're going to live in his household and you're going to be in his kingdom forever, my goodness, shouldn't we expect to know his ways intimately? One of the privileges of being a parent is if you get to, hopefully, as best you can, consistently reiterate for your children what it means to be a part of that family. And you say, this is what it means to be a part of that family. And so we might have a kid over to our house one Sunday after church to play with the other kids. And they might 
learn about us or they might pick up a few things about us, but none of them are like my kids because my kids know what it means to be a Hoffman. They know my heart. They know me personally. They know me so well. They know me so well that even when I'm not there, they hear my voice. And I, I'm not perfect by any stretch. And I'm, I'm hoping to grow more and more to be a better parent. But that's the kind of learning. When we're brought into the house of God by his spirit, by the spirit, Holy Spirit of adoption that, that indwells us, it says you now belong to God. And he, in bringing you into God's family, is going to write God's laws and his ways on your heart and mind so that you begin to think God's thoughts after him. And the word of God will suddenly start to make sense to you. Why? Because when you sit down and you open your heart and your eyes and your mind and you come and you humble yourself and you open this word, you're not alone. The very spirit of God and the mind of Christ is with you in that moment, teaching you, training you. But not only are we, is it better because we're learning the laws of God, not only is it, is it better because it supersedes the old one, but it's better because it finally deals with sin. Just done. Which is why when Jesus rose from the dead, you have that physical sign, the, the, the temple curtain ripping. It's, it's that picture, that physical picture that heaven now stands open. You can go into God's presence now. Not on your own back. <laughs> Don't try to go on your own. But uh, through Jesus, Yes is why he says I'm the door I'm the gateway oh I will forgive their sins that word to forgive is, is the word to show mercy and it's only used of God in the New Testament someone may correct me on that I may have misremembered that. If I did, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it is predominantly used of God. It's what God does in releasing people. He says, I will remember their sins no more. That, that's the language of not holding you to account. Oh, man, there's nothing like being released from your sin. There is no, there is no greater feeling than, than, than having your guilt just unclipped from your back and <laughs> just leaving that. So, summary, whoops, go back. Summary, this text, it presses us to appreciate the greatness of Jesus' priestly ministry to God on our behalf. This is all about appreciation. This is leaning into what you have. You have this today. This covenant, these terms, this Jesus, you have this. How you respond will show how well you understand this. If you walk out of here thinking, okay, now, 
God must be against me. I really need to figure out how I'm going to get him back on side. Then you have not heard what I've had to say this morning. If instead you walk out of here and you look, you can walk into the car park and lift your eyes up and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you opened the door back to paradise because I couldn't get there. Thank you that you have actually made the final offering for sin and I don't have to worry about how I'm now going to justify myself. And thank you, Jesus, that, that you've given me your spirit so that I can actually learn what it means to, to be in relationship with God. And so how will we show it? Our response is going to reveal our understanding. I'll tell you just a few little things, a few little markers. First of all, you know, you know you've begun to see Jesus in this way when you start praying more. When you start praying more. I love what Donald Miller wrote. He said, most people stop praying for two reasons. One, they don't think God can do anything about it. Or two, even if he can, they don't think he cares enough. But when you see Jesus and you know your advocate is with the Father, your lips will be loosed. Your heart will begin to dialogue, to, to pray, and to converse with God. Another mark is that Jesus and what he's done in offering himself will become so precious to you that sin starts to smell bad. It just, it just stinks and it reeks. And and yes, you know, it might have been fun rolling around in the mud, but, but you'll know you've got this when, when, when you start realizing, man, this is mud. This is muck. Why am I continuing in this? Thirdly, thirdly, you'll know you start to understand this when you know you start to understand this when your impulse the impulse will begin to arise to see other people who are hurting and to say to them, oh, I know I may not be able to help you, but I need to tell you about Jesus. Not because you have Christian guilt for not witnessing, but because you actually believe and you actually understand that there is an advocate who can do something and you see someone hurting and, you're, and, you're, and, and your instinct is to say, oh, if they knew Jesus. If they just knew Jesus. And, and thought of yourself just sort of flies out the window because, because, man, the need is real and the need is great. We have a great high priest. I'm going to put the big idea up one more time, just so you remember it. We needed a new way to God. And so Jesus entered heaven itself to establish this better way. Let's pray. Father, will you strengthen our hearts through your loving intercession? Will you bless us? Lord, we are a fearful people. Lord, I think of Joseph who had to tell his brothers 
had to keep convincing them over and over that he wasn't out to hurt them. Lord, they were so afraid that when their father died that he would exact retribution. Father, may we not ascribe evil thoughts to you, but may we see Stephen, the, the door to heaven standing open and may we avail ourselves of his grace. Thank you, Lord, that we have this priest. In his name we ask, amen. Thanks, Phil.